What is there left to explore in the 21st century? This question was investigated in a lively panel discussion in front of a sellout audience at Exeter Phoenix in February 2019. It was part of Explore Southwest, a Royal Geographical Society with IBG event, held in partnership with the University of Exeter and Agile Rabbit. Welcome. Thank you for having me, actually, is what I should say, because the topic up for discussion, is there anything left to explore in the 21st century, is really, for an urban wuss like me, an adventure in itself. The beasts in the jungle I inhabit tend to come from Westminster, and believe me, they're not an endangered species. (laughs) I go for the odd walk in the countryside, but, well, if I do, I will inevitably step in a bog, have an incident with a bee you know, find an overly friendly nettle, all these kind of things. That's my idea of adventure in the outdoors. So I'm in awe of the kind of work that our panellists do, and I suspect some of you in the audience do. And I'm especially fascinated by the way in which tonight's topic throws up so many ethical and practical issues around the idea of exploration and the expedition. Has this already transformed itself as an idea and become about understanding the world we live in rather than actually being some kind of macho trophy hunting endeavor or our conquest and triumph somehow tucked away deep inside the exploration backpack. We have a fabulous panel. Faraz Shibley is no ordinary vellum lined lawyer. He's also an explorer and a travel writer. Aged 25, he spent two months leading Bactrian camels 1,600 kilometres across nomadic Mongolia, becoming the youngest Briton to cross the Gobi Desert on foot. He works as a barrister in the field of human rights. Our next panellist has, as far as I can tell, never met a snake he didn't want to hug. Uh, Niall McCann rather modestly says he's conducted remote uh, area biological research all over the world, and these days he's focusing his considerable energies on conserving our natural heritage in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He's also well known for presenting Lost in the Amazon and Biggest and Baddest. Johanna Wadsley is an academic researcher, an occasional wilderness expeditioner, and a tympanist. She won a Royal Geographical Society Award for her research expedition, hugging the coast in exploration by sea kayak in a place, and I think I'm going to say this wrong, the Sangihe Archipelago in Indonesia, yes? And last but by no means least, we're going to hear from folk singer and Mercury Prize nominee Sam Lee. Sam's exploration is a musical one, and he seeks out previously forgotten folk songs from corners of some of Europe's most ancient communities. Welcome to you all, and I'm going to begin by asking each of you the same question. What does the idea of exploration or an expedition mean to you? Are they even the same thing, Johanna? For me... Exploration through expeditioning means the embodied skills of being in and travelling well through landscapes that are either an environmental challenge for human survival, the cold, altitude, heat, or remote from human assistance. Um, But I I want to say that remote actually in my mind means more than one hour from the roadhead. So there's plenty of remote areas requiring expedition or exploratory type skills in this country. As a human geography researcher, I use the word explore because it allows for the uncertainty, situatedness and necessarily incomplete knowledge, nature of any knowledge I might already have, collect or generate because it's important for me to avoid the implication that there are knowable single truths for me to discover and, um, and I want, it's important for me to avoid inadvertent claims to authority. There's plenty to unpack there. Niall. 
uh, yeah, I'll be much less complex um, than Johanna was, I think. So I, I've had a bit more of a traditional view of expeditions as pith, hat, pith helmets and, uh, and peaks and firsts. And I suppose for me, an expedition has always been a, a jaunt where the end result was uncertain. So that element of uncertainty that Johanna related to, I completely agree with that. Um, anything where you're not sure whether you're going to come out either alive or with having succeeded in your objective. And there are, I suppose, three aspects of... Uh, that make a successful expedition, come home alive, come home as friends, and then maybe reach the summit is the, is the third one. And, and I, I've always had that. The, in that order of, of precedence, come home alive is key. Coming home as friend is absolutely key. And if you reach the summit or, or whatever objective you had, then that's a bonus as well. But presumably, if you don't reach that final destination, it might uh, actually affect whether you come home as friends. Uh, yeah, quite possibly. But, um, choose your expedition partners wisely. I haven't always done that. <laughs> Faraz, what about for you? What does it mean for you? I think for, for me, um, expeditions and exploration that's most interesting is the sort of exploration that really goes away from the traditional sorts of exploration that we often think about, the sort of imperialist exercise, um, the pith helmets, all the sort of the, the binaries between enlightened people, unenlightened people, civilized, civilizing people, uncivilized people, those sorts of binaries that really don't exist. Um, so for me, exploration is much more about understanding people rather than dominating them, um, setting up lines of communication, and really sort of taking a very different approach to difference, um, trying to not just ask uh, what can we teach people, but also what can we learn from them. So it's a much more sort of back-and-forth process for me now. Um, that's the most interesting type of exploration for me. You've avoided the use of the word expedition. I think, it, I mean, in some ways they're related. Um, you know, they're very closely tied. And for, for me, I'm a bit uncomfortable sometimes about using words like expedition. I mean, it's inevitable in some circumstances, but it does hark back a bit to that sort of historical baggage. And I think similarly, a lot of people nowadays might describe themselves as adventurers or travel writers and just avoid the word explorer altogether because of that sort of historical baggage. And I don't think it's a problem to use the word as long as you're sort of clear about what it means and, and what it doesn't mean. Sam, I think it's going to be very different. I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. I think your kind of exploration and expedition, I, I imagine, starts from a different point, or does it? Well, I, it's, it's funny. Until I was invited here, I never really thought of myself as an explorer that I ever went on an expedition. I, I think of myself more as a, a listener, really, and listener to the land and and the expressions of the land in many different ways, both with the traditional music of the people living close to it, but also of the environment as well. And I see very much that the work that I do is about trying to document that and pay homage and respect and repatriate the sounds that are existing that are intangible, the, the intangible cultural heritage, but also the disappearing sounds as well, both in the human world, um, within uh, traditional oral vernacular culture, but also with in the species that are very close to us, looking particularly at uh, birdsong at the moment, uh, that's disappearing at an extraordinary rate, and looking at the connections between the two of them. And for me, it's about putting back into place that sense of adoration that we as a as as of people who are part of nature still are, still are, and having to recognise that we have a place, and our musical and expressions are very valid and need to be reconnected with that. So that's what I do as 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 an act of journeying. There's so many quite sort of romantic ideas that you've all already expressed, but why do we need to go anywhere anymore? We have, you know, satellite imagery, we have data. Why do we need to explore or to have expeditions in the most practical sense? No. So I think 
things started with kind of a, a flag planting exercise. Yeah. We go out and you, you claim this. And then exploration shifted to being about understanding the planet and how it works. And now I think exploration in many ways has shifted to how can we protect the planet. And that's why exploration is still incredibly important. We, we now have a much better understanding of how the planet functions. And we realize that things are really at a precipice. And what we need to do is understand how we can save that. And understanding how different environments react to changes that we have induced are, are very important. So exploration for me still has a, a very prominent place to have now because we're at risk of losing the planet and there is no planet B. So, so we need to continue exploring to best save the planet that what's left. But Faraz, do you think those overtones that you actually both referred to, do they muddy the idea of exploration now? You know, when people think about why we need to do it, is there still that element of a sort of very Eurocentric or Western-centric idea of, of somebody going out to find something out. The idea that the knowledge is there for us to discover, not necessarily that it's existed there for, forever. I think, I think it does exist, um, that old sort of interpretation of exploration, but in a very different way. It sort of shape-shifted a bit. So rather than talking about people, um, for example, as being primitive or hostile, um, in contrast to the sort of brave, heroic explorer, often we talk about places as being extremely dangerous or hostile. Sometimes that's right under certain circumstances, but there is the temptation to sort of exaggerate or to play up the risk and to play up sort of how hostile a place is. So often you'll hear people talking about war zones. You won't hear anything else about this country apart from the horrid things that happen as a result of war. And it's a, it's a sort of kind of poverty porn effect, you know, talking about sort of charity poverty porn. It's a similar sort of effect, I think, that does happen sometimes with writers, with photographers, when they hone in on a certain aspect of a country because it is exotic, because it's very different, because it's very hostile. You know, often they, they betray some of the real aspects of the country that, that really need to be shown the light as well. No, you must face some of that when you work in the media. I put my hands up, you know. We all like a bit of an extreme story. It makes headlines. There must be that some of that when you're when you're filming and stuff. Yeah, and it's grim. Um, so so uh, there's always a constant battle between me and the producers. The exhibition community is also really really guilty of trying to big themselves up and make inflated claims. So there are constant claims of firsts that needn't be made. And I know for sponsors, people feel that they do, but there's an inherent need in people to exaggerate, and it's, it's a great shame. And the expedition community is definitely guilty of that. Johanna, what, how do you view this? Well, for me, as a social scientist, I might use expedition skills to get to a place or travel through a place, but I'm doing it in order to conduct social scientific research that has rigor, plausibility and credibility. So I, I do say that, I'm, that I feel that I want to explore, but what I'm actually there to do is investigate. We keep realizing just how little we know or understand about mm. how the world works. And what we do know is that we have an increasing realization of the extent to which our individual and society well-being is dependent upon the qualities of our environment. In a changing world, we need knowledge that leads to better distributions of risks and benefits. And we actually need to understand what we will or might lose in terms of ecologies and cultures. We need to find ways for, for current and future generations to live lives that are free of fear and free of being grindingly difficult. So for me, using expedition skills and techniques is a means to an end. It's a way of accessing the situated embodied knowledges of people in different places. Can I just talk about those skills? Because you, you talk really well about the craft of exploration and the aesthetic of exploration, which I really loved. It's not something I'd stop to think about, but actually really vital, vital to, to the world that you're describing. If you're going to go somewhere and not kind of scar the place, but simply 
be in the place, that there's, there's a responsibility that's inherent. For me, there are four levels of exploration, and the first, the first level is the place where you need to start, is the craft and aesthetic of traveling well through remote or challenging environments. So by craft, I mean the technical skills required for leave no trace travel and living. And when I say leave no trace, I also mean, you know, that the tracings of your visit through other people's lives should also have done, not be harmful in any way. By aesthetic, as an expeditioner, this is very train spottery, but I mean the perfectly packed backpack. No, See, I no lumps love and that as an idea. I just love yeah. that. It goes on to like the most elegant route across the glacier. That means the most safe and efficient. The thing of beauty that is a serene hanging belay for all those climbers out there. And, and perhaps importantly, a campsite that minimises impact on fragile ecosystems. Sam, you were nodding through a lot of that. I, it's just, your, your articulation of it is absolutely wonderful, Jaron, and there's so much um, that I want to respond to. And, and ultimately, it comes down to this idea of conservation, and I, I think it's without doubt that the generation uh, behind us is one that's not going to be able to experience the world in its uh, prolific beauty and diversity is the way that we have. And I think it's so important, our role as explorers is about installing a sense of wonder, because it's through that wonder that we inspire both the further inquiry, the recognition, the exploration, and, and, and obviously, eventually, a sense of respect and protection. The, the most important thing is, is, is leave no trace, but actually how can we take back into our lives a sense of that spectacle that we are encountering, and how do we share it, communicate it, and inspire others to integrate the natural world into their lives? Mm -hmm. No. Yes, the idea of leaving no trace and conservation was very important. A few years ago, um, 2012, I was on an expedition to uh, a part of Honduras that no one had ever been to before. And from the, the last village, we cut a trail for two and a half days. I was looking for tapirs. Um, and we're seeing monkeys that have never seen another primate before. And it's, it's an amazing thing, seeing a primate looking at another primate and thinking, what the hell is that? <laughs> it doesn't look good. So uh, I'm just going to throw some feces at it and hope for the best. Uh, and, and so we were up there and we, we spent a couple of weeks researching and surveying. And then as we were leaving, we had some people from the closest village walk for the day and a half. It took them to follow our trail to come and carry some of our equipment back. And I overheard these guys saying, oh, this place is great. I'm going to come back here and hunt. And I suddenly thought, that's the worst thing possible. It was my selfishness for wanting to go there to find this place and research the animals that are there. And these guys that live locally don't care about the intangible benefit of, of this national park. All they care about is the fact that those monkeys, they can shoot and eat. And I felt a huge sense of guilt for having opened up this literal path into a place that had never been touched before. And, and I know it will now have been despoiled despite my best intentions. Well, how does that fit, though, within the ethics and the, the kind of the way in which you think about how, how has it affected decisions you've made subsequently? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm still trying to reconcile uh, myself with this, and it certainly made me think twice about um, the, the, the benefits of cutting a path. I, kn I know a, a piece of research I did um, during my PhD demonstrated that hunting of tapirs is much, much higher near paths and even when you're a scientist, creating a transect, that's a way for you to access a place. But that also provides access for someone that doesn't want to count the animals. They just want to hunt them. So we, we might think that we're doing conservation work and benefiting the planet, but actually are we having a negative impact? We wouldn't know that unless I was there looking. But if I hadn't gone there, then, then maybe it would have, it would have how, been left. How does that fit with this interaction? I think, I think Farah, as you were talking about the exchange of information between the communities that you find 
How does that fit with that idea of respecting local knowledge and the local way of living? I, mean, I, I think there's bound to be some sort of tension between you know, different groups when they meet in that sort of circumstance. I mean, I'm thinking of an example in Mongolia when during my trek across the desert, we, we stumbled on this sort of festival that was going on at the time. We had no idea. Huge thing in the country, though, called the Nadam Festival, where you have people contesting in lots of different sports. Uh, including horse racing. And on the horses, they use very young children as jockeys. And sort of being a nomadic country, you know, kids are in the saddle from about the age of five or six. So it's incredibly impressive as an outsider to go and see this. Tourists go now and, you know, it's becoming more of a, more of a show. But when you sort of look underneath the surface of that, actually you find that in many cases, you'll have kids who will be hired out from one family to another. They're living away from home. They're often abused physically or sexually. And they drop out of school. And they can be racing sometimes in the winter in sort of minus 40 degrees Celsius where issues of frostbite, the horses slip over, limbs are broken, and quite often actually children die. So I think that's another sort of example of you know, us going along and, and sort of seeing these events that look really spectacular to us uh, and, and maybe more through the tour tourism industry than opening up a trail, but creating more possibilities for that sort of thing to happen. So, so I think you know, it is inevitable in some ways that there will at some points be friction um, when you have that sort of interaction with other places and other people, but we should do our best to minimise it wherever possible. Johanna, you tell a, a story when you were involved in the Hugging the Coast project of the people, some of the people that you met who were fascinated by the idea of a bunch of women turning up in a kayak. I mean, what did they make of you? Yeah, this was one of the um, unexpected outcomes of, of Hugging the Coast, um, which I think about which was a validation for us for, for using sea kayaks to, to do this research project. Um, one of the expected outcomes was that we gently disrupted local norms and national assumptions around women on the sea. So the fact that we were women and approached the coast by sea kayak enabled us to access areas that were frequently overlooked because only local canoes or our kayaks could go over the reefs. But it was reported in Compass at the time, the national newspaper, that the expedition proved the tenacity of women, challenged perceptions of the sea as a gendered domain. So, so, so women are not supposed to be on the sea in those And cultures. this is the key thing, is that in Indonesia and across many parts of Southeast Asia, the land, the sea, and the space in between are gendered spaces. So men fish deep sea, women glean on the shore. And what that means is, is that... It was a surprise for them to see us travelling, going out on the big sea. So our kayaks created the connection when we first arrived because their initial similarity to canoes. Locals would come down to the beach, the men would look at the paddles, they'd look at the rudders, they'd look at the canoes themselves, but the women would talk to us and say, wow, you've come such a long way to talk to us, such hardship. Where are your husbands? And what this meant was that, that our conversations always started from places of similarity and difference, the journey, the sea the equipment, and it was it was particularly interesting how the men and women responded to us differently, but it, it was not something, it was out of the norm for them to see women on the sea travelling independently. Sam, when you turn up in places to collect songs, what do people make of you? I imagine they're pleased that you're interested, but are they surprised that you're interested as well? Utterly. With the, the process of gaining the trust of, of the families, I work mostly with uh, gypsy, English gypsy, Irish and Scottish traveller communities who live often in very difficult conditions in, in halting sites and uh, stopping places. 
close to here off the M5 and uh, all across Ireland as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm entering into unknown territory and certainly places that no non-travellers would ever go except for the guard of the police and social services. So they're very surprised when I turn up. But the minute I start talking about the songs, they're aware that I'm interested in something very fundamental to their culture. So they're always very inviting and curious. And it doesn't take long before a song has kind of won over that, that sense of, of trust. But following on from this, that of being a London white liberal male, I, I have to be very careful with some of the judgments that I make on some of the beliefs, some of the opinions, some of the ways of life and conduct that I see that doesn't always appeal to my sense of sort of right and wrong. Um, and this is something I've, and I'm sure all of you have experienced as, as, as you've been talking yeah. about, which is very interesting. But I think it's also about that sense of uh, how I have to go with it and lay down my sense of judgment, which is very important. And, and actually, often as, a, as an interloper, say, who am I to come in and try and change and make a difference uh, in that sense? And that's not my responsibility. The people that I'm usually working in have far deeper troubles in their lives and situations of, of immense poverty, of sickness, enormous levels of suicide in, in those communities. And actually, there's something far more fundamental that needs to be addressed than their, their, their opinions towards the role of women in the house and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it, for me, it's, a very, it's, it's something that I, I struggle with. But I do also want to say as well, just going back to Niall's point, about the human intervention and how we hierarchalize, if that's the word, um, the role of, you know, what's more important, the tape here or the community living there? And it's, it's, a, it's an argument that's happening every day, particularly with organizations like WWF and Survival International, who are fighting for this idea of what's more important, the National Park or the Kalahari or San Bushman, and their right to, to hunt these endangered animals. And, you know, everybody has, will have their, you know, their favoritism towards a certain area, but, but in the end, for me, what, what I always will say is that the biodiversity wins out whatever encourages. If those people who are hunting are actually learning about an area of the forest that they might then end up protecting because they've realised of a particular value that it has for them, maybe there has been a benefit. So there's, there, it's, there's such complex arguments about what happens when we go in and, as I often find, show to the people that I'm working with the value, the, the riches that they are carrying that they have no idea of within the songs, but also the biological riches. Is there that kind of exchange? How difficult or easy is it? I usually say my real job is that I run an anti-poaching organisation. So um, we, we, we identify national parks that cannot cope with the poaching crisis and we try and save them. Inevitably, that brings me into great conflict with the people that live near that national park who are quite often specifically trying to kill all the animals that are in there because the Chinese are offering them plenty of money for the tusks or, or whatever it is that they're after. I feel I've got two responsibilities. I have a responsibility to that biodiversity to try and protect it. But we also do have a responsibility to the people. And the way we, in our organisation, National Park Rescue, try and reconcile those two is to pr try and link the success of our protected areas, the national parks, with the success of the communities. So if the communities are in, engaged and integrated in what we're doing in those national parks, then they will receive some physical, financial benefit from there being more animals. That can be through tourism, it can be through uh, employment that we offer, it can be through commerce that we, again, we, we offer. So it's trying to tie the fates of, of people to the positive conservation benefit of the park. But sometimes people just don't care. We can be massively sanctimonious in, in the UK about conservation. But if we're walking down the street and we come across an aggressive badger, we've done really well. Whereas people that live next to tigers and live next to lions and live next to elephants, these are genuinely life-threatening animals that they live with on a daily basis. And I can understand why they actually don't want them there. 
I do want them there. And this is what I wrestle with every day, is stopping them killing the animals that they want to kill, sometimes because they're being um, paid off by the Chinese, sometimes just because that elephant trampled on their, ch their, their child that morning and they want to kill it as a result. Faris? I think that sort of debate and that tension between not wanting to impose your own morals or your own set of, set of values on other people... That, that's also a massive issue in the international development world. I, I worked for the UN in Mongolia for a few years after I'd gone there um, on the Gobi Desert trip. Part of my work was to advise the government on changes to their labour laws, and part of that centred on the issue of child jockeys. And it's a very difficult feeling when you think, am I imposing a blueprint that has been sent from above, you know, from the United Nations, from sort of universal human rights norms? Am I imposing this on a community in a way that is unfair to them, in a way that they just don't recognise? So, so there's, a, there's a huge tension between, uh, I think, that act of trying to do something that you believe is good, um, but on the other hand, taking into account the views of the people you're affecting and that they might have completely different angles on, on what you're trying to do. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm going to move on a little bit. What, then, do you think are the big scientific questions, if you like, that can only be answered through exploration, expeditions? Johanna, what would be the big questions that you'd turn to? Um, I'm going to say something I've probably already said before, is that uh, we, we need to better understand the interrelatedness of human development with environmental change at all scales. Because I think that's actually going to... The, the, in, the interconnections between these two issues are the biggest issues of this century and the next one and the one after that, I, I think. I think for me, again, it just comes back to this situated knowledge, going to places to actually understand how people in places that are already severely affected by changing environment, environmental degradation, understanding how they see it, the changes that they're making, the adaptions that they're making, which, what's, what's working, what's failing, why is it failing. Sam, it's slightly different for you, but where would you go if you could go kind of almost anywhere? What would, you, what would be your priority? The wonderful county of Devon. <laughs> well, that wanted to sound popularist here. <laughs> every time you had to I say that, didn't every you? time I cross the border, I go Devon. I'm in Devon. <laughs> Am I happy? It's. I really is. You know, I'll fight with Yorkshire for it's this. So thing, charming. No, but really, I. Um, I think the thing is, there is so much to dis discover here, and there's so there's such beautiful landscape um, that I I'm I'm totally in love with this place, and you know, I just I want to to say that in many ways, being the non-scientist I am, that I think love is the most important thing we need to understand and share when it comes to protection, because I think that's the, the most dangerous thing. We're in such competition for the resources that there are, as, as you, you're all saying. Um, but we need to really kind of educate uh, on what, what we have to lose. Um, otherwise, there'll be no, there is no fight. Faraz, mm. I know you think collaboration is really important in terms of a, a priority for research. So how would that influence you if you could go off tomorrow? Where would you go and, and what would you work on? I, I'm probably going to slightly rip off Sam's answer here in that, in that I think I'd probably stay somewhere relatively close to home. Exploration can be about our relationships with people right on our doorstep. So in terms of my work in refugees and migration, integration with local communities, that sort of work, there's so much work to be done in this country. We, we still look at people very much in a sort of black and white, us and them, binary sort of form. If you read a newspaper or you read it, say, during the migration crisis, you'll read about people being either genuine needy refugees or economic migrants or scroungers, and there's very little sort of shade of grey in between. 
and you know, human beings and migration, these are complex things that can't just be reduced to tiny categories. So I think a lot more exploration for me needs to be done, and I'd be much more interested, rather than going off to places and exploring in future, exploring my relationships with the people in, in my hometown, uh, in my home county, in the place where I live. Well, on that note, let's open it up to the floor. There's so much more to talk about. Lady at the front. Um, hi, thanks very much to everybody on the panel. I'm interested just to pick up on that last question that you had uh, about collaboration. You're all talking about the importance of you know, listening to local people, but what about who decides what the expedition is about, where it goes? Yeah, Johanna, who's in charge, I guess, in a way, of the, of the ideas? So when we were developing Hugging the Coast, um, my, my colleague on the... Um, who helped write the bid for the Royal Geographical Society, Dacre Burgess Watson, she had spent a lot of time in Indonesia. She was an expert on Indonesian seaweed farming. And the first thing we did was get in contact with Grebel Gadarang at Sam Ratulangi University. And so whilst we were building a team, there was lots of other things going on, we discovered. Shall I tell the aeroplane story? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. So... <laughs> So just to kind of emphasise just how collaborative a project like this needs to be and kind of evolves, we didn't know that it's very hard to get kayaks in Indonesia. And we had a real problem getting them into the country. And so the first load of kayaks were ordered and then just got stuck on a ship somewhere and then we had to reorder them. And then it was a really down to the wire in terms of time. What happened was that a conversation happened between the resort owner, Silk Air, the subsidiary of um, Singapore Air that flies people from Singapore to Manado, and the airport manager, the kind of they did a, you know, they had a meal and they talked about it. And that, what they came up with is, they said, look, there are two flights a week on an aeroplane that has a hole big enough to take a six-meter double kayak. And to prove it, the diving resort persuaded the airline and the airport to let them build a cardboard kayak, which they took to the airport went plane side, showed how you could manoeuvre into the hold and turn it around. And look, hey, six metres, it's in. And so we got permission to bring in two of our four kayaks on the aeroplane. But all of this was happening in the background. They, weren't, they didn't want to tell us until it was over because they didn't want us to freak out. And it was the sense that it was, this, it was so deeply collaborative, it took our breath away. And from that point of view, the, these, these relationships built. And so... That meant that actually then, in terms of the research ideas, evolved as we went along. We had some ideas, but then it turned out that we weren't allowed to do the trip without a support boat. Our intention was never 100% to see kayak the whole journey. The priority was the research. So we said, OK, we accept the support boats. We had a crew of three men who followed the distance. And as we went, our conversations with the crew over mealtimes, things like that, and, then, and they would say, talk about things that they were experiencing. Some of them had never been so far afield, and we're just talking 20, 30 miles away. But they had lots of ideas for things that we could talk to people about that they felt we ought to know. And so it kind of just evolved as it, as it went along. We thought we were going to look at seaweed, but we ended up talking and looking at so many more things. Sam, can you exchange? Can you collaborate in that kind of way? Is there information that you give as well as take away? I hesitate to use the words take away. Um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's the, the expeditions, for want of a, another word, uh, that I run are all about exchange and collaboration. 
uh, and a few of the projects, three of the projects that I do are firstly the pilgrimage work about carrying song uh, and repatriating song back to the natural origins of where the songs have come and also the nightingale work that I do with the singing with nightingales and that is all about the, the collaboration with nature. The nightingale one is about taking 30 people a night into the habitat of uh, mating nightingales in April and May and with musicians and myself we have a musical collaboration with the bird that has an extraordinary capability of responding and that for us is all about a, a, a you know an improvisation with with nature and this year I'm leading a pilgrimage to repatriate the, the ballads of the River Dee and the River Spey and Feshi back to the land that is at the moment totally hostile to the salmon spawning and in turn affecting the amount of freshwater pearl mussels which are the river filters um, and that symbiotic relationship is has collapsed and the Scottish Highland rivers are, are dying so we are taking the ancient songs back in a way that has been practiced for millennia across the world, calling back the species that were once there. It is all about collaboration, but it's all about the intervention and the act of releasing the, the, art, the artistry that we all have, the ability to sing, to, to be present and to listen, but also to share in that, that, you know, in that, that wonder. So that's my approach. It's fascinating. And Niall, do you stitch that into a, a, an ex expedition, this idea that there can be an exchange of local knowledge. Who do those ideas belong to in the first place? Why should we go with a very fixed idea of this is what I'm going to do? Very much so. So um, the anti-poaching work is massively about theory of change. We have to allow those people to feel as though they, they are determining their own futures. They, their futures cannot be determined by a couple of white guys coming in and telling them, no, you can't do this. So we have to collaborate. We have to find ways which empowers them and enables them, from our perspective, they then become the first line of defence for that national park. But from their perspective, they are determining their own future trajectory. So, so collaboration is critical when it comes to the conservation work. Paris? I think sort of going back to the international development example I was talking about earlier and trying to avoid putting a blueprint of, you know, what we think should happen in a certain country with the laws, with the policies of a certain country. Um, I've tried to apply that in the ways that I've worked through the UN system in Mongolia. So, for example, I, when it was working on ch child jockeys and changing the laws um, to, to make sure that they're protected, uh, I, I was the only international member of staff involved um, all the researchers are, Mon are Mongolian and people who know the issues back to front. So it's not as if you're sort of parachuting a team of lawyers in to effect legal change. And all I was really doing was providing advice on how best to achieve the outcomes that they wanted to achieve anyway. So they do all their research. They do the field work. They work out what the situation is, what they want to change. Uh, and then they simply ask me as a lawyer, what's the best way from a legal point of view to effect that change? Uh, so that's the, the sort of work I, I try to do as opposed to the sort of work which could be seen as just imposing our views on other people. Who else would like to ask a question? Uh, oh, gentlemen over there and there. Let's, get, let's do all three. Okay, so three questions. I'm going to describe the first one as the, well, you've got a fridge argument, you know, the, you've got a fridge argument, why shouldn't I have one too? What's your collective legacy and how do you inspire perhaps children from poorer backgrounds or from any background really to see the world beyond one of these screens and the more the wilder, more remote parts? Faraz, answer all or as many, any. <laughs> do I have to answer them all? I think in, the term, in terms of the you've got a fridge uh, sort of argument, it's very difficult and it can sometimes see 
it can sometimes seem a bit disingenuous to say, well, you know, don't do that. Even though it brings you more money, you'll get it some other way. That, that's often how it comes across. And I think in, in the sort of human rights and international development context, you know, often we'll say to families who send their kids off to work, we'll say, well, look, um, why don't you spend time educating them? And then, you know, they're going to bring more money into the family later. But that doesn't deal with the issue of, well, what do we do now? How do we bring money in now? We don't have enough money. Um, so so I, I think it's a difficult one, and there's not really an answer, to be honest, um, from a sort of, from my perspective, from an international development human rights point of view. It's not a sort of thing you, you can throw money at uh, just to expect it all to change. It's not the sort of thing where you can just you know, educate people to do things differently and things will be better. It's just a sort of slow, gradual change that has to take place over a very long time. So again, it's not a sort of, sort of you speak to them, you tell them the answer, bam, they implement the answer. And I realise that you know, presents more questions probably than answers. But, but I, th I think that's, that's the nature of, of that sort of question. I think the key thing for this precise situation where you have um, rare ecologies, habitats and need protection, it, it's about, as quickly as possible, training up local partners so that they can communicate the benefits. In terms of legacy, I'm going to be brutally honest and say that I, I'm not particularly happy with the legacy from Hugging the Coast at the moment because... It really was a scoping study. And for it to have had a legacy, we came up against the structural barriers in terms of being able to take it further, primarily funding. And so the RGS grants are absolutely essential for getting you out there. And in terms of academic research, they are brilliant for small projects or primary projects. But actually, the next step is, very, is much... It's, it's just order of magnitude times 10 more difficult. Ideally, what, I w what we would do is go back and work with Grevo Gerong and say, actually, let's go back and do a comparative study, see what's working in which places. So I want to say that legacy is a really challenging issue when you go to a place if you can't go back and follow up and do something more worthwhile. To come to the, I'm going to say kudos, I am also, I'm just going through the UKS process to apply to retrain as a geography teacher. And I also have a background experience in education and I want to say, go you. Um, I think that probably, I don't think the issue... For you so much, I'm willing to bet the issue is not that the schools don't want the kids to go, it's, it's money. And I, I live in Tottenham, deprived area of London, and the schools are slashing their experience or education problems. But what I want to say is we have to keep trying. And, and I think that there are now increasing realisations of the scientific reasons for doing it and the well-being reasons for doing it. For a start, if your only experience is a diminished and degraded environment, that resets your baseline of what a healthy environment is. So this is a key reason to take children to places that are not as environmentally degraded as the places where they live. So in my case, it would be taking school children to a place where they, it's not usual to see litter everywhere, for example. This changes practices. I think that they are just beginning to understand the relationship between the health of an ecosystem and our own health and well-being through the, this idea, a concept called the exposome, which I've recently been introduced to. It's a physiological anthropology concept, and it has opened my eyes. It's explained a lot of things about the way the world works or doesn't work to me. These anthropologists, they ask, why do humans need nature to be whole? And they answer that the answer is blowing in the wind, complete with microbes, natural light, and phytonicities. Now, these are the kind of natural volatile um, compounds produced by plants that are antimicrobials, antifungals. So if you live in a place where you never get to breathe this stuff in, you are diminished as a human being who adapted and evolved to live on this planet. But the other interesting thing they've discovered about the exposome is that your experiences as an individual human being have an impact on your health and well-being as you grow older. So it is important that children actually have an opportunity to see the stars 
for real. And I think the key thing is just that um, I have said, told many people is that I feel a bit like an imposter here in terms of um, you know, how much have I actually done as a researcher or as, as a research expeditioner. But the point is that for, no matter what you do, it always starts small. So that first little adventure outside of your comfort zone, going to Wales from London where I live, spending a week in a cabin, hiking, building tree houses and that sort of stuff, this is actually absolutely essential and we must keep pushing for it. Oh. All agree with that. Sam. Yeah, I mean, there's some wonderful answers and I agree with everyone here, which is uh, a very rare occasion that a panel is in such agreement. But um, I, I think just to, to touch upon uh, things, I was very lucky growing up uh, within the Forest School Camps movement, not the Forest School, but the Forest School Camps, and as a Camden town-born urban kid, was taken out on some very extraordinary adventures from a very young age. I understood what having permission was to enter into the natural world <laughs> sensitively, but also the concepts of right to roam and, and actually a, a sense of participation within the natural landscape and it imbued in me a sense of self-sufficiency which has had such an important impact on my life and I see it in the kids that I have led through my years growing up through the organisation. The sense of risk, um, I think we have a, a, a really extraordinary challenge in how we perceive the access and the use of our country and we are in a time where that is up for debate and this is a very good debate to have because for me the greatest issue is about the lack of access to the natural resources. I am a romantic and we're probably all of a certain type of person here but um, nature has been one of the greatest teachers for me, um, probably more so than folk song in some ways. It has actually been a, a place where I have actually learnt to love myself. Uh, and we have a, a total issue at the moment how digital technology, mobile phones have, uh, are working so aggressively to disconnect us from a sense of awareness, how the anthropony around us, the noise of human uh, experiences denies us that ability to listen to the, the biophony and the, the beauty of the sounds of the environment. But actually, a slowness and awareness are a great place to discover actually what it is that is going on inside and, and how much we are responding. And that I think there's a, a, there's a vast amount of knowledge out there. But we need to be led, and we talk about the teachers. We need, this is not something that you discover on your own. It's, it's about slow guiding, and we need more people brokering agents of that uh, investigation and that exploration. I think that's what we need more of in the world. Johanna, in a sense, if you love something, you pursue it. But it, it does feel like a strange context in which to talk about love. And if you were to be in that classroom in a year's time, could you imagine how do you communicate that to children? There is certainly a great deal of joy to be had when you find yourself in a place that you begin to understand. But I will say that as soon as you realise you experience joy in a place because you understand it then heartbreak comes too. And I cried this week when I read Richard Flanagan's article about Tasmania burning. Yeah. But I want to talk about love, the kind of love that, that I think, I actually think you're talking about, which is actually the, it's not, I'm, I'm not so much thinking about the, the inner journey, but the way that the external journey can cause you to love the thing that's just under your nose. 
when I went to train in the United States, the, the, the part of my semester that I was kind of least psyched about was going into the desert, actually, because I like snow and I like wet mountains and things like that. And I was like, oh, no, three weeks in the desert. But actually, when you spend three weeks or four weeks in the desert at a human pace, you know, everything slows down. And, and of course, life in the desert is very, very small and very, very subtle. And it, immediately after learning about the fragility of, of what holds the soils together in these places and allows larger life forms like, like mosses and lichens to establish is these kind of colonies of bacteria that leaves their sheaths as they move through this top layer of soil on the sand. And this holds the soil together. And when you get down close to it, you don't, even need, a, you don't need a microscope. You see what look like just cities of this stuff in the sand holding it all together. And I knew that I truly loved this desert and I loved those bacteria. Faraz, I'm going to come to you. You must have loved the desert. Oh, I love the desert. Um, I love the, you know, the sort of contrast of my normal life in London and then my early midlife crisis in the Gobi Desert. But you know, for, for me, exploration is much more of a sort of... It's much more of a story of, of people rather than places. I know that's not the same for everyone, but for me, it's much more about the human interaction. So, actually, I, th I think it underlies both the sort of human type of exploration and the you know, more sort of climate conservation, um, the world we live in type of exploration, because what it fundamentally comes down to is how can we coexist? How can we coexist with these other people? How can we coexist with this environment? How can we share a planet with limited resources, with a growing population, and with massive inequality... How can we share this in a way that benefits everyone and allows everyone to make the best out of themselves? So for, for me, I, I think that sort of love, thankfully, underlies a lot of exploration nowadays, unlike um, in the days gone by. Uh, and, and the fact that that's now a focus of, of so much exploration is it's joy to me. No? Uh, yeah, so I fell in love with the natural world uh, when holding in my arms a dead seabird. Uh, I was six years old on Red Wharf Bay and holding a dead razor bill. And uh, an aging professor, a friend of my parents, said to me at six, what do you want to do with your life, Niall? And I said, well, I think I'm going to be a biologist. Probably study birds. Ra razor bills, most probably. So, so from that young age at six, I knew that I was going to spend the rest of my life dedicated to wildlife. And it was that access, it was that exposure, that sense of wonder you get when you're holding an animal close. And I've seen that as I've, as I've grown up. I, I've seen people burst into tears when watching... Um, humpback whales swimming around them. I've, I've watched an Australian man lose the ability to articulate because of the northern lights. Just just became a gibbering wreck of profanity um, because it was because he just couldn't couldn't take what he was seeing. And those types of experiences cannot be replicated in an office. But I'm about to have a kind of change in in, in personal circumstance, which might might change things entirely. My, 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 my wife is expecting our first child in, in 10 days' time. Uh, we, we have the hospital bag in the hotel just in case we need to run away. And when I'm experiencing the world through a, a little one, maybe that will change the way I love the world. And I, I'll be very interested to see my own trajectory and how I view my work and uh, the more frivolous activities that I do because I now have the responsibility for this, this little child. Well, love and the hope of a new child seems like a lovely place to to wrap up this discussion. Thank you very much to Nama Khan, Farah Shibley, Johanna Wadsley and Sam Lee. Now we're going to have a couple of minutes break and then we're going to hear Sam sing, which after everything we've heard this evening, I'm so excited about. I can't wait. So just give us a couple of minutes to get set up. Thank you very much for a fantastic set of questions. Thank you very much to our panel.
So I feel that's a wonderful song to, 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 to start on and, and talk about how the songs have been part of my journey and my journey has been about the songs of searching for the people who have kept those songs alive throughout the centuries, but also how those songs hold within them this extraordinary wisdom of the land, of our relationship to it. Um, and in the short amount of time, I really want to tell a little bit of the story uh, behind them. So um, I, I'd like to sing one of the Scottish, one of the great Scottish ballads, a song called Johnny McBride. Um, and this song comes from my teacher, Stanley Robertson, uh, who died coming up 10 years ago. I was on the phone to his son on the journey down here. And the Robertsons uh, are a Scottish traveler family um, and have been keeping the, the, the ballads and the stories, the old stories, going uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're an ancient community, Pictish uh, tribes, um, itinerant nomadic people who speak their own language and were very much the wise keepers of the ways of the world. Um, sadly, Stanley's son Tony is now one of the last of that community who certainly speaks the, the traveler cant and holds that extraordinary knowledge, and I'm talking encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, of the landscape. Um, and Stanley, my teacher, was a wild, deeply psychic man. He was born um, in, in Aberdeenshire and spent his entire life traveling that land and being taught, taught the, uh, the, the ways of, of that land. Um, and the river that was so um, important to his family uh, was the, the, the River Dee and the River Don, uh, that both rise within 10 miles of each other in the Cairngorms and feed out within 10 miles of each other uh, in Aberdeen itself, the, the parallel, the twin rivers. And they made a great living out of uh, catching the fish, but particularly finding the freshwater pearls uh, on that river. But there was enormous amounts of superstition and lore that went in about the dangers of those waters, the kelpies and the sprites and the things that would Took, uh, took many of their family, and every member of the Robertsons had encountered some mystical dark force and would tell the stories. And many stories exist, but the one I want to sing for you is that of Johnny Bryan. And I, I was thought to it because of its poaching subject um, and talks so much about the, the, the role of poaching. And poaching has been a very big issue for us in this country, particularly in England, <coughs> with the Enclosure Act and the, the effect that's had on that of uh, disconnection from the land. And this song talks of, as Stanley would call it, the law of Greenwood. Um, there was an enormous amount of wisdom held uh, within the forest, the Aberdeenshire, the Lowland Forest and, and the Caledonian Forest, most of which has disappeared now. And the law was all uh, about the bonds between man and, uh, and man and man and nature. Um, and this is the one very much about the inheritance lines and how poaching of the deer, of the venison, was an opportunity for, uh, for the nephew of Johnny to uh, seek to come into his inheritance. For the, the sister's uh, child, son, is the only uh, known way of tracing your lineage. A man would never be certain of his own son, uh, never can be, but uh, your, your sister's child, you can be sure, is uh, within your inheritance line. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, excuses and ways of trying to see out your uncle uh, to come in the way. And Johnny, Johnny was a, a, a great hero, huntsman and uh, wild uh, law unto himself. 
he goes out poaching, and there are an incredible set of motifs in this ballad that talk about how knowledge is passed on, particularly at the end and the breaking of the bones. The, the old way of reading the messages would be looking at where the fractures and the human body had existed. You could tell the story of what had happened. And this song is about the encounter within the green wood. Johnny rose one May morning, cold water to wash his hands. Go bring to me my two greyhounds. They are bound in iron bonds, bonds. They are bound in iron bonds. And Johnny's wife, she wrung her hand. To the green would do not gang for the sake of the venison. To the green would do not gang, gang. To the green would do not gang. But Johnny got out through Monty Moss and down among some scrub, and there he spied a young dilly. Lying in a field of scrub, scrub. She was lying in a field of scrub. And the first arrow that he fired wounded her upon her side. And between the water and the woods, his greyhounds lay their prize, prize. His greyhounds lay their prize. But Johnny and his two greyhounds drank so much of his blood that Johnny and his two greyhounds fell asleep in the wood, wood, fell asleep in the wood. And by there came a cruel old man and an ill death may he die. He went and told the foresters, and he told where Johnny did lie, lie, and he told where Johnny did lie. And if that be young Johnny of the brine, then let him sleep on. But the seventh forester denied for he was Johnny's sister's son, son. To the green wood we will gang. And the first arrow that they fired wounded him upon his thigh. And the second arrow that they fired, his heart's blood blinded his eyes, his eyes. His heart's blood blinded his eyes. Johnny rose up with an angry growl, for a mighty man was he, for I will kill you six foresters, and the seventh one back I'll break in three, in three, in three, and the seventh one back in three, and he put his foot all upon a stone and his back against the tree 
and he did kill the six foresters, and he broke the seven swans back in three, and he broke his collarbone, and he put him on his grey mare's back for to carry the tidings home, home, for to carry the tidings <coughs> home. What is there left to explore in the 21st century? This question was investigated in a lively panel discussion in front of a sellout audience at Exeter Phoenix in February 2019. It was part of Explore Southwest, a Royal Geographical Society with IBG event, held in partnership with the University of Exeter and Agile Rabbit.